This is Lee Cure, a podcast for conversations from the heart of the continent on Indigenous languages, music, culture, and art in the Age of Reconciliation. Thank you, merci, and miigwech for listening. Anin, bonjour, tansi. I am Brina Link, the communications assistant for Lee Cure, Heart of the North. And hello, I'm Hannah Connolly, the production assistant. To give some context to this podcast, Lee Cure, Riel's Heart of the North is a dramatic musical written by Métis poet and librettist Dr. Suzanne Steele and composer Neil Weisenzell. The words Lee Cure mean the heart in the Métis language of Machif. Dr. Steele is writing the text of Lee Cure in the indigenous language of Anishinaabe Moin, which is the language of the Soto and Ojibwe peoples, and three dialects of Lunichifs, as well as French and English. This project is in collaboration with a large team of Indigenous translators, Deborah Beach Ducharme, Donna Beach, Dr. Agathe Chartrand, Joyce Dumont, Dr. Lorraine Cachula-Vallée, Suzanne Zecca, Dr. June Bruce, Jules Chartrand, and Vernon de Montigny, as well as our archivist, Vic Froze. This musical explores the love and lives of Louis Riel's pre-resistant life, the Métis and kin of the heart of the 1870s continent on fire with change. This production honors the enduring strength of Indigenous and Métis women. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to our second episode. In creating this podcast, we are hoping to make space to explore the experiences of Indigenous and Métis creatives during this age of reconciliation. Today, we will be having a conversation with opera baritone singer James Westman, covering everything from his involvement with the Likir production to how he thinks COVID-19 has changed the opera world. Our guest today has appeared in many of the world's leading operas, recitals, and concert halls. His versatility and artistic sensibility has earned him the highest praise from audiences and critics across the world. His career has encompassed over 35 years of singing, over 60 different roles on the opera stage. In recent years, Mr. Westman has gained praise for his vocal training of professional young opera singers in university conservatory programs throughout the world. His recordings have been nominated for four Junos and two Grammys. Mr. Westman lives with his wife Nadine and their two sons, Liam and Hardy, by the Avon in Stratford, Ontario, Canada. And here is our guest, James Westman. James, we have a bit of a surprise question for you. What do you think about greyhound dogs? Well, I think Italian greyhounds are amazing. Um, I grew up with dogs, cleaning kennels and so forth, and, and uh, you know, happy happy life, happy wife. <laughs> I have, uh, we, we own a couple of greyhounds. We just love them. It's kind of our COVID hobby, so to speak. And because I travel a lot less, I'm able to partake in their kind of development, and, and my wife is actually taking two of them to Westminster this year. So Westminster Dog Kennel, kennel Show. Wow. The big sounds... one in New York. It, it happens. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Kind of everything's up in the that's air. All, that was a surprise question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I'm, I, I love them to death. I love them to death. If there's any chance you ever get to see a uh, an, a greyhound or a, or a hound run or lure course, it's just unbelievably graceful. It's just so beautiful to watch. Oh, I bet. And I've heard like with over the years that they used to be very mistreated. So it's nice to hear someone who's treating them very well and taking really good care of them instead of just breeding them to be 
overexhausted running dogs. You know what I mean? Well, it, it's interesting. Well, what, the, the dogs that we have are the Italian greyhounds. They're actually the ones in the old paintings, like the European paintings. Mm-hmm. We don't have any of the, the large greyhounds of the racing kind, although we thought about rescuing them. But I have my I have my issues with rescuing dogs because then you kind of contribute to the to the habit. These dogs just race for pleasure. Like right. they do the yeah. kind of like the agility courses. They're the miniature greyhounds that you see on those old paintings of of people, you know, by the sides of their feet. Oh. And yeah, that's really cool. They're miniature greyhounds, yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's Thanks awesome. for yeah. sharing a bit. Um, so would you be able to tell us a bit about your involvement with the Liqueur Riel's Heart of the North Opera? Yes, well, I, it, it's been a wonderful opportunity um, that we performed last year. I, I play the role of Riel, although it's it's even though he's such a strong figure, obviously in the whole story and and and, and every nature of, of the story, it really focuses on on the females in in the opera, and I think that's extraordinary because I I really had a good time. So I, I performed the, the part of Riel singing in several different languages, and uh, and I really enjoy this because I I've, I've done a lot of research. I actually sang. Sir John M. Macdonald in Lua Riel's um, Henry, uh, Harry Summers piece with the Canadian Opera Company. Okay. And so we studied that for a good year to bring that up to stage during the Canada's centennial. And it was it was a difficult show, mm-hmm. partially because of my Indigenous past and, and partially because I was playing Sir John M. Macdonald, for God's <laughs> sake. Uh, I'm glad people are coming to terms with that because they didn't even just a year ago. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair. Huh. So Riel was a figure that was familiar to you, even as you were coming into this project. Very much so. Sadly, more because of the production at the Canadian Opera Company. Of course, I knew about him in history, and but you know the history books are being rewritten, hopefully, and and younger generations will have the opportunity to learn more about Louis Riel. Yeah. Unfortunately, during my childhood, he was fairly skipped over, and the doctrine of the white colonists were, were indoctrinated into our history books. So I didn't get an opportunity to to share that fate. I remember going and seeing his um, house in Manitoba, and it was very emotional for me. I, I stood there for a good hour and just wept, and, and, and it was a real beautiful moment apart. I wish I had learned this as a young man, and it would have maybe made my faith towards um, the Indigenous movement much stronger and and the history movement really yeah yeah for sure i think i could say the same thing i i remember very vaguely and i didn't graduate that long ago um there being maybe like a chapter on louis riel but you don't really hear about you don't hear a lot about his life you mostly hear about his death so i think this opera is really interesting in the way of it kind of focuses a bit more on a hidden side of louis riel or speculates about it but it's art so that's okay yeah exactly exactly you're exactly right, and I think his life was so important for Canadian history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's his life that, that really changed the landscape, but I think we tend to forget should have changed the landscape a lot more. Yeah. So, yeah, going back to talking about the production of it, so you performed in Regina, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So was there any particular point in the opera that really struck you, whether it was the writing or the music? Um, do you have anything to share about that? It's a very good question, and usually, 
having performed an opera once or twice, you get you get favorite pieces of it. And I was I was you know like thinking about this. Obviously, my favorite part of the opera is the duet with Marguerite. Hmm. It's beautifully written um, by Neil, and it's beautifully put to words by Suzanne. It, it, her word art is just incredible, really, in that section. However, there's so many good sections in this opera. It all becomes kind of a blur of beautiful creation uh, from the top to the to the bottom. And there's very few things like there's very few creations that I can say do this to an artist. One of them is the War Requiem from Benjamin Britten. I really don't have a favorite part of that. It kind of starts at the beginning and, 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 and it, it's ended. And before you know it, the whole piece is your favorite part. This is similar to this opera. I think it's a very powerful piece. I think it's very well written. Um, and I'm very excited to do it again. I think it should be done again and again and again and again because it's just so it's so involved. Um, now, I, I, I understand we're, we're upgrading it and there's going to be more things added to it. Um, and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. We are too. But I'm just kind of curious, um, was the part with Marguerite, the duet, the part that actually moved you to tears every time you performed it? Yes. Okay. It, it's really quite beautiful because I, I relate it to my own situation, although there was a couple moments in that offer that I related to tears. <laughs> um, uh, there was also the trio of or the women where I'm not singing that, that uh, luckily I was in tears because as you know as a singer it's very difficult to sing while you're in tears <laughs> um, saying some of the best singers never cry when they sing um, I do remember sitting listening to the female sing and, and just being in tears just hearing their struggle but the struggle put through such beautiful music you know beautiful music and beautiful words it was really quite striking to me um but for me personally, the, the most rewarding part is that duet. For some reason, I really latched onto it. I think it was because of the fact that I travel so much as a, as a, as a, as a young man as a, and as a performer. Hmm. Um, I just understood hmm. Riel's kind of angst. Well, that's, that's really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. um, we understand that you have an Indigenous ancestor. Would you care to speak about that person? Well, I, I'm not Indigenous. I, I, I'm not classified as being Indigenous. Um, we, I, my great, my, my great grandmother was Iroquois uh, from New York, the state of New York. Uh, and at the time when she married my grandfather, on my mother's side, and at the time when she married my great grandfather, it was just not talked of. Um, I didn't really. My, my father never talked about it. Although we have some beadwork and so forth. It was a situation where we were farmers from basically the 1700s, um, and during the 1800s, of course, farming was very much, uh, how shall I say, a, a prejudice. You know, anything that's leading the world in terms of economy is, is prejudice, and so it was, if it had come out that she was indigenous, we likely wouldn't have been able to survive farming, and that's the privilege that I grew up in. Um, having come full circle now and realizing that I have indigenous blood running through me, I remember being in Santa Fe just, I think it was 10 years ago, 10 or 8 years ago. I performed there about three or four times at the opera company, beautiful opera company. And uh, I was there, and, and, and the New Mexico really, really invests heavily in their indigenous culture and their indigenous population. They're, they're actually considered uh, uh, just 
incredible people there and and there's so much more respect there than there is for Canada I, I have to say anyway to make a long story short I was driving down the road and I saw this advertisement for a feast day and I phoned the opera company and I said which is a good one to go to and they gave me a name so I stood there and I watched these warring tribes dance off with one another in terms of a peaceful you know instead of war they were dancing they were all in costumes and beautiful makeup and body makeup and beautiful choreography thousands and thousands and thousands of people I think it was close to 15 tribes hmm. and I stood there and just wept just wept and they made an offering to one of the the, the the big kind of pueblos there and then I was offered to go into several homes and eat with them and it, and and in that and then I had a drum made there and and I come to I came to terms with my indigenous heritage there and I haven't looked back um, that was eight years ago and and, and I've made my kids very aware. That's so wonderful. As coming from an Indigenous person myself, it's so um, intriguingly refreshing to hear that story. So thank you for sharing that with us. Well, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it, it, is, it is a remarkable story. I, I, I do think that we all have to come to terms with these things and, and, and we have to work much harder than we have to, to understand different cultures and to understand that the benefit that the indigenous people give us is, is a sense that we don't have right now. Um, a sense of environmental awareness, a sense of family awareness, a sense of heritage awareness. Yeah, I, I think it's really important. Um, and I've been very lucky. I, I consider it a blessing. I really do. No, that's true. Me and Brina recently just took a course on, called Reconciling Stories, Indigenous Laws and Lands. And one of the things that the instructor said is that people don't realize that strong Indigenous communities create a stronger community in general. So it's, it's, if Canada is willing to help um, Indigenous people come back into their strength, then that's just going to make the whole country stronger instead of this constant back and forth oh, fighting. Absolutely. And again, it should, have, it should have happened 200 years ago. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's progress, not perfection. And I think we're going in the right direction. Exactly. So that's a good yeah. thing. So kind of kind of going off of this a bit. Now, you said that you have performed in the other Louis Riel opera as well. Um, but do you think there are ways in which the opera slash music world of Canada could highlight more Indigenous stories or culture? And maybe have you seen this movement happening at all? I have, and it's it's been very unique. I think it's been very slow, and I don't think it's been very passionate. I'll be honest with you. I've seen places like the National Arts Centre, the NAC, incorporate a whole Indigenous division um, in their art and their plays and their music. I have seen things like the Canadian Opera Company try, try their best to... to write Indigenous operas and, of course, the great work that Suzanne does. What I think has to happen is what should have, as I said, what should have happened 200 years ago. You know, one of the things that was remarkable for me and sad, the most sad part about anything, being a creator of music and creator of art, was the fact that we stole the Indigenous people's rights to make and create music hmm. by taking away their rights and their stories in song and drums. And I think that we owe a great amount of, what shall I say, uh, shame for that. As artists, I think we need to now go back and understand their art, uplift it. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes a long time to become an opera singer. I'm proud of it. 
it's a lot of hard work. 14 years of dedicated sound training, beautiful shouting sound training of a European art form. But I will never forget um, Everett Morrison, who was a young baritone from Manitoulin Island. And I was giving him singing lessons. And man, could this guy sing. Holy cow. And there's no doubt in my mind that he should be singing all over Canada. <clears throat> and I think he will once this COVID thing lifts. But the one thing we did is we forced an education on the Indigenous people with all the wrong European ideas. We should have been helping them with music and collaborating with them in music. Not social structures, not Indigenous mm. structures, not taking away from their families. We should have sat down and discussed their stories through music and art. That's where we should have been, and that's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm not ashamed by any means of my European art, and I'm not saying that Indigenous people should learn European art, but I think there's a strong uh, argument for collaboration mm -hmm. and uplifting both of them together. Yeah. I think that, yeah, it's become a, we're, we're so quick to try to, almost in our relationships with Indigenous people, like, we want to get something out of it, we want it to be productive, or whatever but yeah. I think that art is something where you just really have to sit down and listen and see what happens it's not going to be predictable uh, but you're absolutely right collaboration at the moment this is what we need to do and there's a misunderstanding we collaborated all the wrong things <laughs> religion and taking people away from their, their fathers and, and mothers that's just it's ridiculous we should have you know listened to their drum beats learned their drum beats showed them what European art is about and whether they like it, you know, or not, they can decide, but collaboration is where it has to begin, really. Mm -hmm. So you have done some incredible work all over the world. Out of curiosity, do you find that different cultures respond differently or is music a worldwide language? I think there, I, that is a very good question. It's a very complex question. I do think different societies uh, act differently towards performing arts. And I think sadly it comes down to education. You know, I will never forget, one of my most favorite places to perform in Canada is Quebec, especially mm -hmm. Quebec City. We can put on an offering there. And get a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas you put it on in a more conservative area like Toronto or or Vancouver and there's a very kind of limited audience that politely claps and then wants to get to their car to get home as soon as they can it is a big difference and I do believe that the passion is different in different societies for our European art form and that's just a matter of education and it's something that I think opera companies need to work harder at establishing that education but when you can inspire someone with something that you've worked so hard whether it's be perfecting a loaf of bread or perfecting a field of grain or perfecting a painting, I think you get that inner joy and that's what keeps you going, right, in the art form. So for me, it's, it's really inspiring young, young kids to, to, to hear their first bohem and go, wow, I can relate to that. Or you made me cry or you made me laugh. And, and that's yeah. really special. That, you know, we're here and we're gone in this world and that's the least yeah. we could do. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, is there a selection process you go through before choosing a role within a production? Yes, I, it, it, I had my old mentor teacher, Miss Patricia Kern, 
who is kind of, uh, how shall I explain to you, Miss, Miss Kern? She was a strict Welsh woman who didn't put up with any fuss. And I remember singing E-aw for three years and, and not singing one note of repertoire, one word. For three years, that's all I did was E-aw. And uh, she told me once with great flair, you pick an engagement based on three criteria. Does it pay well? Is the music rewarding? And does it benefit your career? And that has always stuck with me. Um, I try to get two out of three. Sometimes I get one out of three. The odd time I get a unicorn where it's three out of three. But, you know, in, depending on conflicts in terms of if I have two offers that come up at, at the same time, it's difficult because, you, you know, you have to, you just, you can't take everything on because you just, there's not enough time sometimes. So you have to establish kind of some ground rules. And those are my, my, I take an engagement based on those three criteria. And, uh, and yeah, and uh, that's, that's the way I think. And that's the way I kind of have to think. Uh, interesting, Heart of the North, I wish the government would give us more money for something so powerful, but it definitely rings very, very strong out of the two of the three. Um, musically speaking, it's been a wonderful production. And for my career, well, I can only hope that someone would think of me as someone that portrayed Ruby Real, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Much better than Sir John and MacDonald. <laughs> <laughs> So kind of shifting gears a bit, um, but to talk about a popular topic, <laughs> how do you think uh, this whole COVID-19 pandemic situation has affected the opera world? And do you foresee any kind of changes in the opera because of what we're going through right now? Well, I, I don't want to dwell on it too much. Right. I think, you know, I've lost about six operas and, and about a dozen concerts. I think... The, the issue will remain with us for many years. You know, I had a friend of mine say that, you know, after the Spanish flu in, in, in the, the early 1900s, it was at least a good decade before people came to the theaters. Hmm. No, I'm not going to scare people that yeah. way, but <laughs> I, I think it will be a long time before our el elderly audience comes back right. again. Um, I think that'll be an issue. And of course, they love the opera. I, I, I do think things will change. I think our audience will change. I think we're going to have to change. The whole society will change. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the opera is strong. It's always been here for hundreds of years. It combines dance, lyrics, art, history, politics, passion, love, in, a, in an accumulation of hundreds of people working, orchestra, backstage, dancers, audiences, uh, and so it will continue. Um, I do think, like everything else in our world, this, this virus will affect it. But I'm hoping maybe for the best. I'm not sure what that is right now. But uh, maybe audiences will come back and, and be unbelievably passionate and it will hit them hard in terms of wanting live performances and needing live performances and using the pain that people feel for this virus. Mm -hmm in releasing that pain mm -hmm. in the offers they see. Yeah, because I, th I, I think that music is something that people turn to in hard times. So we can only hope that when people are stuck at home alone, 
they're listening to music and maybe building up anticipation for the next time that they can hear it live. I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I think that's a beautiful statement. Now it's up to us to make it as good as possible. Right. Um, like everything else, build it stronger and better. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned in another interview that in one year of your life, you spent only about 32 days at home. And you kind of said this earlier that you traveled frequently throughout the years. Um, so you, do you find that you have more time at home with your family with the current pandemic circumstances? And are there any activities that you have kind of entered into because of the <laughs> time at home? <laughs> I'm not one to sit around much. I, I'm, yeah. My father would always tell me, why do you have to be right. so busy? So I've, re I've redone three rooms in my house. I scanned <laughs> about uh, 100 to 200 different cans of jams wow. and you name it. I've perfected my mom's sourdough bread recipe. I've looked at things in the garden that I planted 20 years ago that I didn't know existed. <laughs> I've camped with my sons. I've fished with my sons. I've spent wonderful time with my wife. It's, it's been a real pleasure, actually. Um, I'm getting tired of not working now, although I'm getting involved in teaching at Western and, and I love that side of it, but it's been wonderful. I have to be honest with you. I've really gone back to the things that are important to me and yes, being away 300 odd days of the year can be very detrimental. I have a wonderful family and I've been brought up by wonderful parents to really form a relationship with my kids and with my wife that is important. We always had a three-week rule. I always spoke to my kids on Skype every night. Um, I've had to say no to gigs in the last 10 years or five years just because there's no need to be away 300 days out of the year. Um, I, I don't think it's important. You know, I don't have anything to prove anymore. Um, I love singing. I love contributing. I love singing for my an audience and making kind of as doctors for, you know, to heal a heart, you know, our our art form heals the soul and that gives me great pleasure but I have to invest in my own family now because as I said before in the interview you know we're here and we're gone our legacy is really the people we affect and and I need to I needed to be there for my children and, and that was important to me so that only happened for a couple of years and I basically woke up and said I can't keep doing this because it's not fair to myself or to my, my family that I've created or, or helped create yeah, that must have been nice to get the richness of your family's company over the past few months. Because like you just said, art heals the soul. So once you feel better, it'll only portray more in your work as well. Absolutely. I, you, you nailed it. I think there was, uh, I definitely believe, having, having done this for 35 years, 30 years, and, and, and singing 60, 70 roles and, and so forth, I think there was a... There was a, an instant sub, uh, subconscious idea or a hidden conscious idea of why am I still doing this and absolutely reinvesting in my own beliefs and, and my own family's belief and appreciating a different side of beliefs. I think um, it has changed my viewpoint being around my family. I, I respect them more. I understand their struggles more. Um, and, uh, and I can speak to them now at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I'm talking not my immediate family, but my my, mm -hmm. my cousins and relatives. Because I, I'm, a, I'm a very complex individual. I live in a, <laughs> in, in a in I have many different diverse friends and, and relatives, and I, I have to respect them all. <laughs> um, I should I should just basically keep quiet. Most um, of the time. 
kind of stepping back to your past here, when you were young, did you always dream about being a baritone performer or was there another path that you were going to take? Well, I, I was, um, it's a very good question. I think, you know, when I was young, I was in the Vienna Boys Choir and, and the, the American Boys Choir and I, I sang as a professional boy. Being amongst the farm, I remember a funny story. I was, uh, my voice changed in the Vienna Boys Choir. And, you know, when your voice changes in that kind of an institution, you're sent home immediately. They don't want to spend another dollar on you. You're not useful to them. And I remember in a coaching, my voice went, and it cracked terribly. And it was the word, I literally broke into tears. And I remember my German coach saying, you will be going home, Mr. Westman. And I should be excited about that. And I came home to the farm. And my dad had had a stable that was, God knows, horribly big of manure and gave me a shovel. Didn't give me the implement to clean it out, but a shovel and said, get to work. And I think every time I shoveled that manure, I thought, how can I sing again? <laughs> I, I don't know. Singing's always been in my blood. It's, it, I <laughs> played a little bit of hockey when I was younger. Um, I did want to become a lawyer. One of the first, that was a horrible mistake. I'd make a horrible lawyer. But I remember thinking that I wanted to go to law school at the University of Toronto. And I entered, as, as you know, how I became a baritone. This is a funny story, actually. I entered the University of Toronto thinking I'd do law. And I wanted an easy course. And I'll be honest here that, that you know, maybe had some nice ladies in it. So I entered the opera chorus. <laughs> and they gave me the lead in the opera. And my whole pursuit of law That's completely cool. went out the window. Yeah, so not really hmm. law, but that would have failed miserably. <laughs> so this question, I guess, kind of ties into that. Maybe getting the part, lead part in your opera class was one of these moments. But uh, was there an event or person that influenced you in your life that you would say has really shaped you or defined you as a person? There's been a lot. Um, and I think having my own children, I've realized this through the help of my wife, I think it's really important to find many mentors. You know, I know Susan's a mentor of yours and what a mentor you have in that. But I think it's important for individuals to find many mentors. And I think we can get lost as an individual in one mentor. And I used to tell everyone that this mentor, Miss Pern, or this person that, that made help me find religion, or this person that helped me with my indigenous past, or or this person, but I think the most important thing for me now, having reflected upon COVID, is the biggest influence in my life was my mother, who passed, I think, five years ago now, um, who was a wonderful piano player, used to chord for June Carter Cash and Johnny Cash and the Tommy Hunter show, and you know she'd be out at the farm and they'd be jamming with all these people who would visit for her baked goods and they practice their country tunes. And I think her idea of me becoming a musician was the biggest influence. I will never forget, this is a great story. My first offer, the, really the first professional opera I was in, and the first one I saw, I'll be honest with you, the first time I sang an opera was my first opera. Uh, that's how country I was. And I was in the chorus of uh, the, the Flying Dutchman at the Canadian Opera Company. That was my first opera. And I remember phoning my mom saying, uh, Die Fliegende Hollande is the, is, is the name in German. And she phones the opera company and says, my son is singing in the Flying Hollanders. And why, why I need to get the tickets? 
And that <laughs> stayed with me at the Canadian Opera Company for a good two years. So, you know, my mom really influenced me and and she was always very passionate, always very bold in telling me if I was not good on stage or couldn't hear me or <laughs> didn't think I was moving properly or that was silly. Um, and yeah, and it was it was very reassuring to have a mom like that, I will say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't underestimate the influence of a mother. Well, I think it's so important. I think I hope the history books pick up on this because it's not Lou Real. You know, I've mentioned this several times. And having COVID, I've realized it's the people in our lives yeah. that we, it's the, it's, the, it's the, you know, accumulation of all the people in our lives. And half of those people have to be women. And they're not, they're not, they're not given the voice that, that they need to. Um, and uh, we talk mm-hmm. about white privilege. How about, how about male privilege? Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, these women should have been put in the, in the history books. The more I, the more research I do, there's no way Lurel would have been anything but a poor farmer if he didn't have strong women beside his side. There's no way he wouldn't have been the, the vision seeker that he is today. He wouldn't have had the time. He wouldn't have the energy the support mm-hmm. behind all great men is a great woman and and uh, and and it's sad to even say that actually mm-hmm. because it should be behind every great person is another great person and it's about time we, mm-hmm. we start realizing it and i hope our history books change because you know we pay for these things we teach our kids things and we should teach them opera and indigenous art and yeah. Real history and real present history, not this, not this regurgitation of sadness. Really, yeah, I totally agree. History should be portrayed in a way that values everybody that was a part of it. Like me and Dr. Suzanne Steele are doing this in honor of our great grandmothers and grandmothers. So it's like intergenerational of women that never had a voice that are finally getting a voice through this. Like it's just a small step, but Absolutely. it's a big step. Yeah, in let's a way. make it as big a step as we can. Well, this has been wonderful, and I've really enjoyed speaking with you guys, and I really enjoyed myself today. It's just been wonderful talking about this project. I'm really looking forward to doing it again, um, and I hope I, I hope you come. I hope you can come to. Oh, of course, uh, we're going to be there. Sure. I, I can't, I can't not miss it. So you guys are the best. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, well, thank you. Bye. Well, that was a wonderful conversation. <laughs> um, Brina, was there anything that stood out to you? That James said maybe? Oh, there was a lot that stood out to me. Um, most in particular about the Indigenous initiative towards wanting the opera world to collaborate with the Indigenous music world. I think that would be absolutely fascinating to see and I think it would be giving a lot of people a voice because art is a voice and this is one amazing way to do it and to not just showcase it within say just a certain little city, this can be broadcasted all over the world for people to see, which I think is absolutely incredible. Yeah, I think that was also what kind of stood out to me from the conversation was just like, I don't think we use our imaginations enough when we're talking about reconciliation, because too often we're like, okay, reconciliation means we have to change this law or do this thing or build this monument, which are all important parts, but there's also the creative side of reconciliation and the things that we can expect from it are going to be beautiful. Um, so, yeah, that was something that he highlighted and I really enjoyed. Yeah, I totally agree with that one. I also think it's interesting because reconciliation is to usually 
to mean to become friends again. And I think we were never really friends in the first place. So learning how to develop a friendship with collaboration, compromisation, and all these different new tools that we can bring up while using our creativity would be a really interesting way to kind of absorb a new type of reconciliation within ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And I, I like how you said that reconciliation insinuates that you already have a friendship and I think that maybe that's the truth part Mm -hmm. the truth part is that we have to admit okay maybe we never had a good relationship and maybe we have to build yes (laughs) (laughs) and I mean friendship is all about finding things in common that you love and can share and so music and art is just one way that that can happen Mm -hmm. completely agree yeah it was a really wonderful conversation with James I really I really enjoyed it now it's time for a segment we like to call Anishinaabe Moen phrase of the day. Let's be good-hearted. Minode Eda. Marse, thank you and McWitch for listening to the Likir podcast today. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. On Instagram, we are Heart of the North Riel. On Twitter, we are at Louis Riel, H-O-T-N, and on Facebook, our page is called Riel Heart of the North. We hope you have a wonderful day.